Let's continue worship with a reading from Exodus 33, 1 through 6, and 15 through 16. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, and the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And he said to him, Moses said to God, If your presence will not go with me, Do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Welcome to church, guys. Good morning. I'm grab my coffee. Glad you're here. Um, my name's Chris. Uh, welcome. We are um, in a series um, on the Holy Spirit. We're exploring the biblical role uh, of the Holy Spirit. Who is he? What is he? What does he do? How does the Bible talk about the Holy Spirit? One of the first things we've said is that it's really hard for anyone to come to this conversation with a blank slate. Uh, most of us have some idea of, um, sorry, let me fix this real quick, sorry. Most of us have some idea of what someone is talking about when someone says the word Holy Spirit, right? We, we've gathered thoughts from movies or hearsay from friends or our own conclusions on who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. Um, and so most of us uh, think about the Holy Spirit when someone says that. We think well, we immediately go to tongues and miraculous healings and future telling and stuff like that. So in our small group, we just immediately got there and started digging into all that kind of stuff. Um, but if we're honest, uh, we're on, we're most of the time, we're trying to figure this out really on our own uh, without consulting the Bible itself. So we talk to friends, we listen to sermons, uh, but we never actually pick up the book and say, man, what, what does it say about the Holy Spirit? So last week, or the week before last, we said you're in, we said it last week, too, you're probably in one or two camps. Either um, you're all in on the Holy Spirit. Like, you love this. You brought your tambourine and your holy hanky today, you know, or you're watching from home uh, because this is just super suspicious to you. And is this even in the Bible? And I thought we were a Bible church, Chris, and I really wanted to like this church. Can we just stick to the Bible? Yes, yes, and amen. And that's exactly why It's exactly because we want to be an intelligent, rational, practical, theologically, and biblically sound church that mandates that we are people who are full of the spirit of the living God. That's actually why we're digging in. Because listen, it's impossible 
to read the New Testament and attempt to deny that the Holy Spirit is the number one necessity for the existence of the church. You can't. I mean, you can, but you're going to compromise your intellectual integrity. You can't do it. You can't read the New Testament and then claim, oh, the Holy Spirit's not really, a, you don't really. Dude, he is saturating every page almost by name. Sometimes it's called the Spirit, capital S. Sometimes called the Spirit of Christ. There's Spirit of Christ, not Chris. There's, there's a whole lot of language given in the Bible to help us understand what exactly he does. But we just often, we attempt to figure it out on our own, right? And if I'm honest, when I think about us trying to really figure this out on our own, I, I really clearly think that we do that to maintain a sense of control over your faith and your life and what that faith may require of you. And so we define our own terms. We define our own terms. We come up with what we think it probably means. And, you know, we'll talk to some friends and he agrees. So, yeah, you know, right. And so to many of us, um, y'all, faith is kind of a, a tool for many of us, right? It's like, like a tool, like a toothbrush, you know. And so you find the uh, church brand toothpaste that you like. And then you get your faith toothbrush and you're just, you know, gonna every at least every Sunday, right? It's like going to the gym, like going to the gym, right? You're going to do it. Maybe you'll do it a little bit more. And, you, you know, if you get the right brand church and you get the right tooth, toothbrush faith, you know, you'll probably be able to, like, get your soul clean or prove your worth. You know, it's probably what you want to do. Or maybe fix your spouse. A lot of people go to church to do that, right? No one's going to amen that. <laughs> On Mother's Day, Right? Or get that raise, you know? Um, Y'all, we all come to Christianity with a surprisingly diverse set of expectations of what we think God ought to do. But you see, when you do that, um, it's becoming clear that uh, you are coming to the creator of all things with your own agenda. When you use faith like a tool, you are basically saying, okay, God, if you can help me do A, B, C, and D, then we'll talk about my worshiping you. Then we'll talk about, my, I mean, maybe I'll even lead a small group, you know? But you got to do A, B, C first instead of um, listening to God on his own terms. On his own terms. And, and worshiping and surrendering to him simply because of who he is and what he's done. Have you ever noticed uh, that God appears to have his own agenda in the Bible. Have you noticed that? I'm, I'm being serious, I'm like 100%. Have you noticed God appears to have an agenda in the Bible? He, Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Has it ever crossed your mind that God has desires? God longs for things, y'all. He wants things. And if you're like, nah, I don't know, man, he's all powerful. Doesn't that negate his sovereignty? Uh, okay, was Jesus God? What about when Jesus says, how I've longed to gather you like a mother chicken gathers her chicks under her wings? Oh, is Jesus not God? Yeah, God has desires. 
He has longings. I'm going to just take it one step further and make all y'all nervous. God has emotions. He's an emotional God. I'm just, I'm just going to step on your toes. He has feelings and intentions. What? Oh, he doesn't get angry? Oh, is that not an emotion? That's an emotion. He doesn't have compassion? Well, compassion's an action. It's also an emotion. He felt. Jesus wept. Exodus 34 calls God a jealous God. What's that mean, a jealous God? Well, it means he burns against anything that would steal your life away. Like a father who would destroy any man who abuses his daughter. I don't care how big you are, I will go ape crazy on you because I am jealous for my daughter's flourishing. I am full of wrath and emotion will bubble up out of me if you put it, <laughs> feeling right now, right? God has desires, y'all. He has emotions and he has intentions for you. And often we have dehumanized him. It was like, well, he's not a human. Well, we're made in his image. What's that mean? What's that consist of? What's the part of us that's actually reflecting him? We often come to him with a list of demands without making any attempt to actually listen to what he might want. In many of our faiths, it's a one-sided conversation, right? Instead of us asking and maybe even listening, well, what brings you joy, Lord? I've made it very clear what I want, right? But what delights your heart? And some of you can't even think to pray prayers like that, right? What brings you joy? Listen, God has personhood, y'all. He has will and intent. And so what's the, what's the disconnect here for us theologically? Well, part of the problem is that we often think of the Bible and God as the same as we think of any other academic field of study. We think of God as a fixed science. Let the academics figure it out. You can major in God. You can get a PhD in God. It's called theology. Just like you can major in science or business or engineering. Now, nothing wrong with that, y'all. I'm ongoing biblical studies right now, right? This week, sitting in bed, online courses, all right? The problem comes when we begin to think of God as pinned to the observation table, like a fixed, sterile object you can scientifically dissect and contain. Many treat God like a dead butterfly pinned to the table or a corpse embalmed for study. This is how many people functionally perceive God. And after you've figured out all the ins and outs, you can use that knowledge for whatever means you want. You can teach a class, preach a sermon. People will love you if you do that, right? And boom, you got what you want. A nice religious reputation or whatever it is, whatever it is you expect from God. Listen, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. Please quit treating it like one, okay? It is first and foremost a story of God in history. It has historical veracity. It is, histor it is an historical account, not a science textbook full of isolated facts. It has context. And what is the story about? Well, in the beginning, God. It's about God. A, who's God? Well, if you go to the beginning, he's a living active being with agency and personhood who created all things and has a living will and purpose for his creation, who today exerts 
his influence and personhood and leadership and power via, guess what? The Holy Spirit. But because we don't want any of that crazy, magic, frothy emotionalism, any of that Holy Ghost nonsense, right? Is it a surprise to you that God, to you, is a voiceless, armless entity without any true activity in your life here and now? doesn't lead. What does that mean, God leads? I don't know. It never leads me. What does it mean that he guides? Is that not in the Bible? Does he not guide? What does that even mean? What does it mean that he speaks? The New Testament is full of hearing the voice of God. It seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit that me and Barnabas should go to the... I mean, it's full of it. And if God is this voiceless, armless entity, dude, no wonder your faith feels dead. You've pinned him to the table. He's a dead butterfly to you. You've put him in an observation box. And you figured out all the... Man, listen, what if you've thrown the baby out with the bathwater? What if because you don't want to be lumped in with those crazy Christians, you've created a Christianity, a version of Christianity in which you have effectively removed the living, active presence of the Holy Spirit? Guys, people do this right and left. And there's another idea under the surface that I think affects how you think about God, okay, as either a living entity or a fixed academic field of study. And it's a misunderstanding of this idea. It's a truth uh, that is well-known in theology, and we probably could, you know, right, it's this truth. You ever heard this one? Theologians tell us God never changes. You heard that? What do they mean by that? When theologians say God never changes, they are saying his character, who he is, his intent, his commitment never wavers. That's what they're getting at. They're saying that he is a man of his word, right? And he's faithful to the end of all things. And that he actually is the only one who is full of undying eternal faithfulness. That's what they're getting at. However, many of us interpret God never changes wrongfully as God is a statue frozen in time and space unmoving. He never changes. He doesn't move. He doesn't talk or do anything. And if that's what that means to you, you've effectively killed God. Right? No wonder he feels dead to you, bro. He never changes, yes, but that doesn't mean he's a statue. You've killed the butterfly. I mean, you've pinned him to a theological dissecting table, and the result is potentially a really big brain and a really tiny heart. You got knowledge, but no compassion. You got intellect, but no love. Morality, but no power. You got law, but you got no life. You got Christianity, but you got no Holy Spirit, right? And I don't know any living relationship that can survive when it's pinned to an observation box or treated like a field of research for scientific learning. Who's married to a counselor in here? I know we got people married to counselors. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything more frustrating when they start treating you like a patient? Right? All, all of a sudden, the convo gets real sterile and they're asking you questions you know they ask. Their, I know what you're doing. You know, quit, you know. Yeah, there it is. I, I, listen, I knew I was going to, I knew I was going to, right? <laughs> or worse, worse, imagine if your friends or spouse treated you like a fixed, unmoving feature in their life. What if your friends and family treated you like they got you completely figured out? Some of you are like, yeah. No surprises, 
No real activity, no real engagement. That's Chris. He always does this. He's always going to do that. Nothing's going to change, right? Because they think they already know exactly what you're going to do. They, all, they got you. You ever been put in a box? You ever been put in a box? Dude, how infuriating when your relationships give you no room for a voice. You guys know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, he's going to say the same thing. No, the relationships that give you no room to be presently known, stifling. Like, I'm out. You have no interest in knowing me. You think you already got me figured out, and I'm going to do something crazy just to throw you off. You know, that's kind of my personality, right? He always does this, always thinks this, and maybe you're right, but I'm going to change it up, right? Well, (laughs) when you think you got someone all figured out, you immediately begin to treat them um, as irrelevant, you immediately begin dismissing them as irrelevant in any relationship. You probably stop talking to them because you know what they're going to say already, right? There'd be no intrigue to the relationship. There's no joy. There's no pursuit. There's no happiness because you got them pegged. You know what pegged? Right? Pegged. You got them pegged. You know exactly what they are, right? And for many, I just described your relationship with God. I just want to tell you that's Christianity without the Holy Spirit. It's Christianity without a God that's alive, speaking, moving, leading, guiding, and empowering. I don't care how intelligent you are. When it comes to doctrine or theology, God is not known merely by intellect. And yes, he never changes, but that does not mean in any way that you have him figured out. If you think you have God figured out fully, I can only imagine how boring your life with God is. And I'd like to suggest to you, you may have greatly underestimated who you're dealing with. The ever-existing one, the ancient of days who rides on the wings of the wind... Dude, sits on heaven and props his feet up on the earth. But yeah, you probably got him pegged, right? Uh, you got him figured out, yeah, right? No, it's, it's not just scope we're talking about, y'all. It's not simply God is hugely more glorious than our mortal minds can comprehend intellectually. It's that he is alive and present with us via the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit. That's one of the claims of the New Testament. God is not known merely by intellect alone. Just like in your marriage, in your friendships, your wife or husband is not known by mere intellect alone. Although some of you probably wish they'd apply a little more rationality to the, to the thing, right? But you are more than a brain. You are composed of more than a brain. You have emotions and desires and instincts, many of which feel outside of your control. Yeah, you have rationality, praise this name, but you are just like me, which is simultaneously a mixed bag of rational and irrational, of intellectual and emotional, of physical and spiritual. Therefore, when the Bible talks about the knowledge of God, it is not talking about knowing mere facts. It is not talking about merely academic knowledge. It's talking about knowing in a much deeper sense. It's not how you'd know arithmetic. Listen to me. You cannot know God how you know arithmetic or botany or web development, okay? We know Jesus like we know or don't know your spouse, like you know or don't know your children or your parents or your friends because we are talking about relational knowledge. Therefore, it is a knowledge that requires active, attentive listening to sustain and enjoy. Is that not how relationships work? And maybe it's becoming clear to you why you stink at them. Because you're a horrible listener, all right? I love you. Open your ears. I mean, you hear, but you don't hear. You listen, but you don't listen, right? Your, your interest is not in knowing them in the moment. Your interest is in letting your desires be known, letting your opinions be aired out, right? Right? 
So, so it's interesting. When the Bible talks about listening to God, in Hebrew, that word listen, I mean, it's much like English. It, it's synonymous with the word obey. Similar in English. And they listened to the word of God. That doesn't mean they heard it. It means they obeyed it, right? And what we read in Exodus is right after the story of the giving of the Ten Commandments and the molten calf. Y'all remember that? Remember when Moses, right, gets Ten Commandments, comes down, they made a golden calf, right, and they're worshiping the golden calf. And Deuteronomy 9 is a retelling of that molten calf story, and it says that when the Lord sent you to possess the land, you rebelled against the command of the Lord, and you neither believed him nor listened to his voice. Interesting. So number one, our faith is a relational knowledge, which is why it's difficult for some of you. And number two, like any relationship, its significance in your life will be dependent on your willingness to listen. Now, a lot of dudes have said this in a lot of different ways. But let me just say that one more time. Like any relationship, with your relationship with God, the significance and meaning and depth and relevance of your relationship with God is not sitting on how good I can get up here and do this. Did you hear me? Yes, sir. <laughs> I got a yes, sir, out of that one. <laughs> the relevance and significance is more dependent on your willingness to listen. Maybe we should say your ability to listen. Y'all, it's impossible to get to know someone if you refuse to listen to them. So, so why talk about all this? Well, the Bible's full of people who knew all the facts about God, but somehow completely missed knowing his heart. The Jews, y'all, thousands of years, had the corner on the divine, man. They had his revealed will, will more so than any other group, people group, and they had his laws, right? His precepts were given to the Hebrew people. And yet, it was the Jews, specifically the religious Jews, who were at the forefront stirring the crowd to shout, crucify. Dude, what did they miss? It wasn't academic. It wasn't intellectual. They had that down, or at least they thought they did. Well, it had to do with something else. His, his presence, his spirit, his active agency in the world, their ability and willingness to actually listen to him, their ability to not harden their hearts, as Psalm 95 talks about and as Hebrews quotes it, right? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden his hearts like they did in the wilderness, Right? And so what we read from in Exodus is hugely significant to the Bible, hugely significant. Exodus 32 to 34 is easily the climax of the Pentateuch, right? This is when Israel uh, was becoming the people of God, when God, for the first time, on a large scale, revealed himself to the Hebrew people. He redeems them out of slavery from Egypt, right? Signs and wonders, brings them to Mount Sinai, and here he gives them the Ten Commandments, among others. And God's physically leading them, what, the fire, you know, pillar, it's like a plume of, like, volcanic, that's what I see. And it's terrifying, right? What we read was right after the climax of the Exodus story. What we read is the moment that after God had made a covenant with his people. This is huge in the story of the Bible, huge. I mean, just referred to left and right, right? Just hyperlinks back to it left and right. This moment in the Bible can rightly be likened, when God gives them the Ten Commandments, to a marriage vows. If you've ever been to a marriage ceremony, you've experienced something like the people of God were experiencing with God at Mount Sinai. God was saying to them, I'm going to choose you. Will you guys choose me? And guess what they say? Yes! Yes, we will! I'm sorry, my cynicism is coming out a little bit. 
Um, they say, yes, we will choose you. They all say, you rescued us. Look, Exodus 24, Moses took the book of the covenant. He read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And then Moses goes up to the mountain to meet God, and it's kind of like a, okay, sign on the dotted line type moment, right? And Moses is up there. He's up there, y'all, stealing the deal, like marriage vows with God. You guys be my people. I'm going to bless you guys. Y'all going to restore my image to the earth. And I mean, just pause just for a moment because it's so like mind bending. We were created to be God's image. That image was fractured by sin. God says, I'm going to restore my image through the Hebrews. Like you guys are going to be a blessing to the nation. And as they're sealing the marriage vows of you guys are going to image me to the earth. What are they doing at the foot of the mountain? Making an image. Dude, so profound, man. They made a cow of gold. And Aaron literally said, "This, this is the God that rescued you from Egypt. Worship him. Like, it's a stunning act of betrayal. The author wants you to see that while the ink is wet on the marriage certificate, they have already broken. Dude, what's the very first commandment? Lord your God. Do not worship any here. I'm going to get it right here. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. And you shall not bow down to Dude. Are you, are, you, do you, are you seeing this? Have you read the Bible? It's bizarre. It, they're, they're breaking the very first rule of the marriage covenant as it's being, the author clearly wants you to see this as a stunning act of betrayal on the heels of supernatural rescue. And look at what God says in verse three. It's equally as stunning. God says to them, I'm gonna give you what you, what you guys want. Go to the land with milk and honey. I'm going to give you what I promise because I, God, unlike y'all, am a man of my word. And I promised that I would do this. So, I'm gonna, so you know what God says? He says, I'm going to send my angel with you. He's going to sort it out. He's going to sort out all them hisites and parasites and all them sites, right? He's going to sort all them out. He's going to give you the land, right? But me, my presence, not going to go with you. You'll get what you want. You'll get physical abundance. You'll get a land to call your own. You'll get my gifts, but you won't get me. Why does God say you will not get me? Because your stubbornness. He says, I'm going to give you what you want. Material abundance. Milk and honey, it's it's abundance, y'all. This represents just abundance after flowing, right? No want, no need. Material flourishing. I'm going to give you that. But you won't get me because you are stiff-necked. That's the reasoning that God says. That's the difference between God going with him with his presence and not. In other words, you guys are going to do what you're going to do, and you do not listen. So we just got to sit with just, just for a second. What did they just get? The law. Ten commandments. Actually, it's a lot more than that. It's like, I forget how many they get. Right? That's a 42 round that we give them right there, right? You can read them in Exodus 20-something. Um, the law. They had that. Uh, isn't the law the thing that we say, oh, that's what set the Hebrews apart in antiquity. That's what set the Jewish people up. It's the law. Don't we say that? Yeah, it's the, we do. I'll answer it for you. You do. We do. Christians do. We say it's the law that made them unique in the ancients, right? And of course, some ways that's true. And, and of course, we think it's the same today, right? We as Christians have a moral ethic, and lost people don't, and that's how we know who's Christian and who's not. Okay, what does Moses say in response to this? Moses has the law in hand. 
Moses seems to think there's something more important. Look at how he pleads with God. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? It's profound. Let's just point out two things. For Moses, the law was right and good, but that wasn't what set them apart. It was God's living, active presence in their midst. Y'all, there were other religions around. There were other laws. There were other gods in antiquity, of course. But Moses said, if your active spirit, your presence is not with us, then we're no different than anyone else. And so you sit with this stuff, and you're like, man, that sounds a lot more like Paul. Sounds a lot more like the New Testament than we're used to. But number two, it was God's living and active presence among them that withdrew at what? Why did God not go with them? Stubbornness, like we said, unwillingness to listen. Now, at this point, if you grew up in church, you may may be thinking, I thought God's love was unconditional. Well, yeah, it certainly is unconditioned. He gives it to everyone, no matter what, if they deserve it or not. But, But walking in it, being led by it, well, that's another thing completely that the very nature of has conditions Let me ask you a question. How are you going to be led and not led at the same time? How are you going to follow someone but not follow them at the same time? Can that happen? There are some things that to receive them means clear implications and consequences. Let me give you a really simple example. For me to say yes to my wife in marriage is for me to say no to every other woman. If I cease to say no to every other woman, I will cease to be married. And I feel like my wife loves me pretty unconditionally. But if I break our vows, I am in essence refusing her love. That's a love that requires something of me, doesn't it? Or you could say it this way. If you want to stand in the rain, you got to be willing to get wet. If you want to drink water, well, you got to swallow it. <laughs> He ain't going to force it down your gullet. He may bring you to the cup, but you got to put it on your lips, don't you? And this is, now I know we're getting on some, oh, wait, wait. God's love's unconditional. But if you want to appropriate that love in your life, you want to live by it, dude, you better believe there's going to be requirements. Like, why are all these commands in the Bible? If that's not the case, why are all these commands in the Bible? Walk in love. Well, what if it doesn't require anything of us? Why are you telling me to walk in it? Right? Why does it tell us to keep in step with the Spirit if we don't need to do that? Right? No, dude, listen. Receiving the Holy Spirit is like this. Can we, are we here? Right? Totally free gift. Father gives it, man. Pours it out on all, no matter gender, class, ethnicity, just like Josh said last week. But when they made it clear, they had no intentions of listening to his voice. No intentions of actually partnering, partnering with God. He withdrew. I'm just reading the Bible, all right? You can put it in whatever theological box you want to put it in. I'm just reading the Bible to you, all right? He said, you can have my gifts, but you cannot have me because of the stubbornness of your heart. You know why? Because God will not become an oppressor. 
If you do not want him, he will not force himself on you. He pursues with the passion of a lover, according to Hosea 2, but he will not force you to love or obey him. You know why? Because that's oppression. And he came to set you free from oppression. We see this in other places in our lives. Dallas Willard uses the example of a party. He says, if you go to a party and you realize that no one is interested in listening to you, no one is interested in getting to know you. No one They're talking over you. They're ignoring you. They're, they're dismissing. They're probably dismissing you because, oh, that's, we already got him figured out. We already know who. We, we know who he's going to say. Will you reveal your innermost desires to them? No. You'll close up, right? You don't want to listen to me. That's cool. That's fine. I'll go somewhere else, right? God will not give himself to those who don't want him, y'all. And this is exactly what we're seeing in Exodus 33. And it's sobering. It's sobering. If you tell God by your action you don't want him around, of course, no one does with their mouths. No one does with their mouths. We're all like, yay, we'll obey, right? But if you tell God in your real life that you have no intentions of listening to him, no real desire to partner with him in the earth and extend his kingdom and glory and light and joy, <laughs> you know, all creation, Right? You may have all the material blessings you want, but you will not get his Holy Spirit. I don't know what else to say. He may give you all the material blessing you want, but you will not get, because his power will only be given to fulfill his mission, not yours. You will not use the Holy Spirit like a tool, ladies and gentlemen. You will not. He will give to empower his mission in the earth. He is not giving the Holy Spirit to simply get you cleaned up, although it's going to do that. He's not giving you the Holy Spirit just to forgive you, although his spirit will make real his forgiveness to you. It's not the Holy Spirit just to fix your spouse or to get that raise. It's for his mission. And what's his mission? Redeem and restore the earth, man. Empower humanity to be his representatives in the earth, right? He wanted a kingdom of priests. Everyone represent, everyone imaging him, right? And if you're still like, well, that's not the gospel, Chris. Seems like legalism. God gives Holy Spirit to everyone, no matter what. Okay, well, Acts 5.32 says, and we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Just reading the Bible to you, y'all. Just reading the Bible to you. And if you, let's wrap it up. Sorry, everyone's like done with this. And if you, can, if you continue reading the scripture, you're gonna get the sense that the Holy Spirit is simply God's living agency in the world. The Holy Spirit is his active influence. It is his arm. And what we see here is after being redeemed, after God supernaturally rescues the Jews from their oppressors, he invites them to be his people and gives them a religious structure. And the invitation to be his people nor the religious structure means anything without the Holy Spirit's nearness. And if the story of Exodus has any prophetic implications for us today, it is that we will often choose the gifts over the giver of the gifts. And when we refuse to listen, when the offer on the table is living, active, supernatural, spirit-led relationship, and we refuse by disobedience, God, the maker of all things, who has all power, all authority, all claim over every living thing, says to you, okay. Because God refuses to be an oppressor and force you to do anything. He simply invites, he pursues, he woos, he calls. But if you refuse, he says, you can have my stuff, but you won't get me. 
You won't get my nearness. You won't get my leading. You won't get my power. And it just begs the question, y'all. It screams it to me. Are you okay with that? How many Christians are in full-out rebellion against God, right, and are therefore refusing the work of his Holy Spirit but have a shell of religion? External rules and regulations. What I'm trying to tell you is that you cannot stand in the rain without getting wet. You cannot bow down to the king while standing up straight, and you cannot be a Christian without the Spirit of God indwelling you. That is not New Testament Christianity. You take the Holy Spirit out of Christianity, and all you got is a shell. It's like your house. When you know one's home, does anything move around in your house? Anything get done in your house? No, no, because God is the animating power of, Christian, of your faith, right? And without the Holy Spirit animating your faith, it's just a shell. And no wonder it feels dead to you because he is the power source, right? So, so much biblical language around this. We're barely scratching the surface despite me going on and on and on. But let me just end with this. One of the things we're told uh, in the New Testament about the Holy Spirit of God, creator of all things, is that you can grieve his spirit. Ephesians 4.30 beseeches you. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. First, lesson, first Thessalonians, first Thessalonians 5.19 says, me and you can quench the spirit. Is that not in the Bible? Is that not in the Bible? Yeah. Apparently, God has arranged things in such a way that me and you can effectively snuff out the flame of his presence in our hearts. It's part of the dignity bestowed on you as humans. You have agency, volition, ability to choose. In other words, there is an opt-out button at the bottom of the Holy Spirit. There's an unsubscribe button. And for one reason or another, many Christians have chosen to opt out of Holy Spirit living. And I'd submit to you that the primary reason you are refusing the Holy Spirit is not because of the bad press. It's not because of the tongues or the fire or the weird stuff. It's because you want to maintain control of your life. You have an agenda. And if God can help that agenda, fine. But if not, well, maybe I'll still go to church, right? But I'm going to, I'm going to drive, Jesus. Thank you very much. You can ride with, but don't touch the wheel and don't dare tell me to turn left. I hate second seat drivers, all right? I just want to tell you, that does not appear to be a possibility in the Bible. And it's why Andrew Murray's book on the Holy Spirit, whole book on the Holy Spirit, surprisingly starts with a chapter on the kingdom of God because the first thing he has to settle, first thing he says needs to be settled when it comes to the empowering of the Spirit of God is who is in charge. He says, I'll read this and we'll finish up. I must in subjection and surrender and in poverty and emptiness receive the kingdom into my heart before I am to be entrusted with all the power and glory it offers me. To receive his kingdom is to submit to the king. And Murray says the first sign of a kingdom is the presence of a king. So if your faith feels impotent, powerless, meaningless, spiritless, might it be because every time God, attends, God attempts to lead you, God attempts to say, hey, go left right here. Every time God attempts to say, don't do that. Every time God attempts to say, hey, go talk to that person. You say, shh, 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 shh. I got this, Lord. I know you created all things and everything, but I know my way in this town, you know. And, and kindness and compassion is not going to work with that person. So let me just take over, right? <laughs> in the biblical picture, it feels like we get is a God who is ready and willing to pour out his very essence on us, his power, his presence, and his missions. And I just, I just want to say to you, as the body is dead without the spirit, so too will your faith, your religion, be dead without the spirit of God breathing life into it. And the question for today is, are you okay with the shell of religion?
I think the question today is, have you pinned the butterfly to the table? Because the offer on the table is God himself indwelling, empowering, leading, speaking, guiding. But you see, to receive all those things requires, if if we're going to receive him speaking, what does that require of us? Listening. Yeah. If we're going to receive his leading, what does that require? Obeying. If we're going to receive his guiding, what is that? Following, right? So it's just silly when we keep on saying things like, God, speak to me, when you're not listening to what he's already saying, right? God, lead me when you're in no way prepared to follow him, right? If you want to stand in the rain, you got to get wet, right? I want your rain, Lord, send your rain, but these are my nice jeans. These can't get wet, right? Let your kingdom come, Lord. Let your will be done. But I do have plans Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday, and Saturday. Sunday, I'm open. An, about, actually, about an hour. About an hour on Sunday, yeah. But let your kingdom come. But I do have a calendar. Do you see what I'm trying to say? If you want to stand in the rain, you got to get wet. If you want to get in the kingdom, you got to bow before the king. Let's stand and pray.